Mic check, mic check. Woo! Stock Market Live is back in session. Welcome, everybody. Austin Hankwitz is with us, as always. Daniel Snyder here. Thanks for tuning in. We got Alexander, Anna, David. We got Johns, multiple Johns now. We're going to have All to make sure Johns. that the Johns differentiate themselves. I love how they're both, Welcome, welcome, uh, welcome. I love that. Yeah. They're both all caps. True. Stephanie is back with us. Michael, Mark, appreciate all you guys showing up, hanging out with us for, if it's your East Coast lunch hour, I don't know, if you're over in the UK and you're having a pint, cheers. Welcome to the show. Um, So glad that you're here joining us. Let's just go ahead and dive right in. We got a lot to pack into this episode within the hour. I want to make sure we get to all of it. We are joined by a special guest today, a Seeking Alpha Marketplace author, goes by the name of Vladimir. He has recently launched a marketplace service called The Roundabout Investor. And I want to get to him because today, I don't know if you know this, Austin, today seems like one of the big news items is that Intel has just spun off their Mobileye unit and they IPO today on the market. It is trading currently. You can go and check it out. We're going to ask him about his thoughts because he recently wrote an article on it. And so we're going to hear from the man himself. I'm excited. I have no idea what you're talking about. And I would argue that a lot of people might not know what you're talking about. So I'm excited to be that guy asking the questions, digging deeper, trying to put these normal folk on on my back, make things easier, make things comprehensible. But I think of Intel, I think of an old, boring business. But if you're saying that there's a new stock on the block, I'm here for it, Daniel. Let's do it. Yeah. Autonomous driving too. Something for the future. I love this. So obviously, if you're new to the show, we always ask you, you know, feel free to jump into the chat, talk to us, ask questions to us, ask it to our guests. We ask for engagement. And the first engagement we already got from John today, who I, I don't know, John, apologize if we called you out, man. But he says engineers always write in all caps. It's not yelling, but he wrote that in all caps. So he's staying true to his word. John, appreciate you hanging out with us, man. Um, let's get into it. Let's just start with a quick overlook of the market, where we are right now, what's going on. Actually, as I pop this up, you're going to see, boom, there's Mobileye trading right there. Look at that. Nice green spike on the day, already up 33%. We'll see where it closes, obviously. Let's go ahead and take a look at the SPY ETF for the S&P 500 benchmark. So obviously, we're seeing four days of green in a row now, right? Why is that happening? Well, let's go back and look at the VIX real quick. The VIX is tanking the volatility index, which measures the uh, adjusting, uh, what is it? The at the money calls and puts of the market. So we're seeing obviously either it's unwinding of puts or buying of calls. We see the volatility coming down right here, obviously breaking through that 28 level that it seems to like to hug. Um, we still do have that gap below the market here. And I want to add another one. I want to add the dollar index to our look this week. Ooh, okay. um, the U.S. dollar, king dollar, strong dollar, right, has completely broken through this minor trend line that we had to the upside. Some, some would say that's a rising wedge, right? We saw that in a chart the other week. Rising wedge, breaking to the downside. I think from here, I would be looking at this support down here from the long-term trend line. Uh, so that's around the 108 level. We'll see what happens if uh, it goes right there, touches right as the Fed comes out to start speaking again, right? Got to keep an eye on that. And then also right. I wanted to point out something to everybody is this is, I don't like to follow Forex much, but I keep an eye on this. So this is the Japanese yen. This is the correlation between those two. And what we're seeing is we're seeing intervention. Like, look at that. Forex doesn't typically move like that. And that was from the Japanese central bank coming in and trying to stabilize their currency with the inflation they have going on over there, which is the correlation to the dollar index. So that explains why we're seeing the breakdown here as well. Let's look at the tech sector. Obviously, tech, uh, we got questions. But let me go back to the daily chart here and throw on our study of the moving averages. One second. There we go. Let's look at some levels here. Obviously, we filled the gap from back here on mm -hmm, October mm -hmm. the 7th. Went ahead and moved through there. Um, so where are we going from here? Well, time will tell. But obviously, what I did recently is I drew my Fibonacci levels from the most recent high to the lowest low that we just experienced. That's why we're seeing some resistance right here. And now if we break through, we can see the 50 moving average right here is at 288, just not the, the next level I would be looking at. And then quick, quick look at the Russell. Of course, Russell also moving like crazy. Uh, let's see most recent high, most recent low, if you wanna look at it like that. Um, it's been breaking through the moving averages 
doesn't seem to have a problem. There is this gap above the market here, as well as the 200-day moving average, some levels to watch. Remember, we could always see a rally up to the gap with a pullback and reversal, or we could always see it go and fill the gap, probably find resistance here at the 200-day moving average, though, and then you might see a reversal as well, just some levels to keep an eye on. Um, so that's an overall look at the market. Let's go ahead and get into initial thoughts real quick. Let's keep it going because that's man, so interesting. Before we jump into that, I think it's so cool, Daniel, that you're talented enough to like recognize these gaps and these moving averages and say, hey, like, you know, just by looking at what this is, kind of thinking about, you know, historical patterns and, and different types of, you know, human psychology with trading, you can kind of see we got this moving average we're headed toward, we got this gap to fill. I just, I'm just fascinated by it, man. I love it. I love it. It's Honestly, man, when you really boil it down, I mean, I read books all the time about market psychology, market trading. I've actually started dabbling in the world of quantitative trading, wow. trying to understand what the quants are doing. Because if you really break it down, pretty much over 75% of the volume, at least, that's a, like a very conservative esti estimate for me, 75% of the volume traded every day is by quantitative machines. Totally. I want to know what these quantitative machines are doing so that when I go in and I'm starting to look for entries and exit points, I can then evaluate what, you know, if it's especially a trade, but then also for longer term investments. Like if I can wait, we've talked about Boeing, we've talked about 3M, we've talked about all these companies. If I can see a level that I think a quantitative tra trading strategy might take it down to where I can get a great entry point and not have to worry about that moment where you're like, I just bought a stock and it's immediately going down already. Like, what the heck? How is this happening? Like, if I can avoid that emotional uh, effect to myself, I want to. And so that's why I've always done that and dabbled into it. So happy to share with everybody. I would love, oh, thank you, Stephanie. Appreciate it. She says Daniel's the man. I love it. Daniel, you I was called Daniel's son growing up. So maybe I'm more, you know, waxing the car, painting the fence, but thank you, Mr. Miyagi. Um, just kind of curious, everybody that's here with us today, like how many of you are into technical analysis? Uh, just go ahead and leave us in the chat. Kind of curious if you guys like that. If you're into it already, if you have other opinions about it, let us know. Um, I will say I'm always learning more about this, specifically from you in these shows, Daniel, because like, you know, at my core and, and sort of what we'll get into later is, and I, I think the chat knows, right? Big fundamental analysis. I love reading the 10Ks, the 10Qs, the earnings transcripts. I really enjoy like forecasting and building these financial models, thinking about what these companies might be doing in the future. But I have no idea the best time to buy as to what you're saying, right? And so for me, that's the hard part. It's like, I know what I want. I know what I want to do. I know where we're going. I just don't know how that might be timed in a way where the macro and what the market's doing, it's just, it's very interesting. It's a cool balancing act. And I think uh, to that point, I think we're a really good duo. Yeah, no, I, I certainly agree. And I think everybody else here agrees as well. So with that being said, let's go ahead and get into initial thoughts. It is time for bullish or bearish. I'm gonna go ahead and get started first. Okay, Take first. It. Let's, do, let's do it. All right, so let's start off. Um, this one is going to be straight gut instinct from you because you already told us that you don't know what's going on about this. So obviously, I mentioned everybody, Intel's mobilized self-driving unit just went public, okay? Um, back in December of last year, some analysts speculated that its valuation was at $50 billion. But now this week, it was looking... I'm not sure what the valuation has come out to right now, but it's looking around 16 billion-ish dollars, maybe you know plus or minus a little bit, depending on how the stock does. Um, not to mention that Intel bought this company originally in 2017 for 15.3 billion dollars. So it's not like it's gone very far right now with how the market has been doing. And in its S1 document, they listed a number of competitors, including Advanced Micro Devices, Nvidia, Tesla. Google and Apple. So, what is your gut telling you? Are you bullish or bearish on this Intel Mobileye spinoff? So, before I hit you with my gut feeling, I really don't exactly understand what this is. Are we talking about a self driving like car company or is it a technology that is then licensed by these self driving EVs that can be turned? You know what I'm saying? Like, like what exactly? Did, how do they make money, right? What I understand, it is all about their, their ADAS, which is like the self-driving system, which runs off processors and probably programming language and, and that's the like, which is why you're seeing them compared to semiconductors, AMD, NVIDIA, uh, Apple. Google has self-driving Waymo that they're working on. Um, but then Tesla is also doing chips in-house. So I think it's more of the chip side. Obviously, it's the Intel company as well. Um, so I would, I would, I mean, obviously we're going to ask Vladimir because he's going to be the expert on all of this, but for my gut instinct is that it's more processing. Okay. So if it's the processing and if it's the 
type of perspective where you can take this technology. I mean, at the end of the day, it's wild to just think about, you know, I follow like motor trend and motorsports or whatever on, uh, on my Instagram. I see all these EVs popping up, EV from, you know, Hyundai, EV from Chev, EV from, everyone's got an EV. And in 10 years, I guarantee all these EVs are going to be self-driving. I don't know how they're going to, they're not going to build that technology in-house. It just doesn't make sense. I think they're going to license it. I think they're going to, you know, tap into what's existing. And if an Intel, that's, I think it's called Mobileye, is Mobile able eye. to take that technology and allow others to use it, then I think that, that to me is cool. I like that idea. I like the idea of selling shovels uh, while there's a gold rush, right? I think the self-driving thing could turn into a gold rush if, if Mobileye and, and Intel is that company to sell those shovels in here for it. All right. It's a bullish. Yeah. I'll take bullish. We're bullish. Right. We're bullish with, with very little information, but we're very, bullish but with But it's gut instinct, right? It's initial thoughts. It's your gut instinct. You don't always right. everything. All right. So next up, um, this is actually something that you wrote about in your rate of return. The IRS is increasing the contribution limit for 401k accounts next year to $22,500. From up from 19.5 this year, so an increase of what is that two three thousand dollars, and then and is increasing IRA contribution li limits up by five hundred dollars to sixty five hundred dollars for next year. Are you bullish or bearish on this move? I'm super bullish. I think it's an incredible move. I think a lot of people, including myself, are in our 20s, 30s, and even 40s, where we're saying, "Man, I wish you know I want to put more away to my Roth IRA. I want to put more money away in my 401k. Maybe." I'm not maxing out my 401k, but now this gives me something to uh, strive for. Obviously, I, I'm not going to say it's easy to max out your Roth IRA, right? $500, $600 a month now. Uh, it's a lot of money for a lot of people, but I think that's really exciting and I'm, I'm excited about it. So I'm definitely bullish about this. I was actually going to ask you a very similar question, um, but my question's a bit different. So we'll come back to that, but I'm bullish on the IRS allowing us to invest more toward our retirement. More I can put in my retirement, the happier I am, especially when it's tax deferred uh, earnings. Do you think it's weird timing, though, with the market being pulled back and all these recession fears that they go and increase the limit by this much? No, I don't. And I think why it's not weird timing is because, you know, my dad is, is older, so he's on Social Security. He just got an eight point something percent increase uh, to combat inflation. And then we also saw with the tax brackets being kind of extrapolated by that seven percent range. Uh, more recently, I think I think they're sort of kind of just doing the three P, right? It's like let's do social, let's do tax, let's do retirement. Like let's just make sure everyone's getting touched on, everything's fine. Um, I, I don't think it has to do with the market. I think it just has to do with how it's it's a big kind of wave of uh, changes uh, as it relates to our financials, uh, personal finances. That is. All right, just had to check. All right, third up on deck uh, is tech earnings, right? So this might be a twofer for you. Obviously, we had Microsoft and Alphabet last night after the bell, and. Man, Man, we know how that's gone so far. Um, so Meta is after the close today, and Apple is after the close tomorrow. Should we be bullish or bearish on these next two big tech names and earnings of this week? I'm going to say bearish because I think that a lot of the... So I've been looking at some charts lately, right? And I've seen some charts uh, that show since I want to say March, April time, a 7% increase in spending from like the consumer side on staples, right? And about 7 to 8% decrease in spending on discretionary, right? I think that's directly impacting Apple. Uh, I, I, you know, the, the new iPhone 14 Pro, I don't know any of my friends that bought them, but I do know, I remember a lot of friends that bought the 13. I remember a lot of friends that bought the 12 when times were great, right? We were even in a pandemic. I don't know a single friend that bought the 14. Um, I think Apple's going to have some explaining to do. As relates to Meta, I think they're also going to have some explaining to do. I saw recently that they're laying off their, um, what is it, their bus drivers because they're not doing, uh, like the shuttle drivers. Uh, I think this is a, a, a employee perk or benefit for working at Meta. You get to be shuttled from some central location to the campus if you're you know, working in the office. No one wants to do that anymore. I just I think that Meta's like having this weird like we have to lay these people off. Should we reinvest in the uh, in the metaverse? We have all these servers now. Like I don't. I think they also have a lot of explaining to do. I'm bearish on both. Hopefully I'm wrong. Right. We all want green, but that's my hot take. Gotcha. And yeah, v the Vita. I guess that's how your name. Sorry if I'm pronouncing it wrong. Says <laughs> that Vita's bearish as well. So I kind of agree you on the meta spot. So funny enough, when I worked at Disney World, we had the exact same parking scenario, right? You had to go park in a parking lot. You had to jump on a bus. You had to take the bus into work. And it was a whole thing. Aggravating as all get out for the employees. So I wonder if this is actually better for employees, but I guess it just depends on like 
you know, if, if you're in San Francisco, Silicon Valley area, like, is there much parking for you? Or are you now going to be walking? I mean, I don't know, but um, cool. Great takes. Two minutes take though. I'll, I'll give them this. The, uh, you know, we know those $1,500 pro headsets. I've seen a lot of cool things about them as it relates to work from home and having these like multiple monitors, like AR monitors. Mm-hmm. Have you seen that, Daniel? Yeah. So I actually have the Quest 2 and I've been able to set that up as well. The hard thing for me is like as a content creator, if I'm making videos and and I was playing with this years ago back at Disney, we were talking to Meta all the time back when they were still Facebook and Oculus at the time. We were trying to figure out if there was a way to actually work in that environment for the stuff that I do. It never worked out. It's just too hard. You need the keyboard, you need the functions, you need the shortcuts. And it was just like, I'm waiting until they got to get rid of these handles. They got to either turn it into gloves or just make it straight finger movements or whatever. Like if they can figure that out, I think we could see a rapid progression within the the work from home ability. But if you're just sitting at a computer writing Google Docs and emails and you have a, a Bluetooth keyboard, that might work for you. Got it. Got it. Okay. Um, I love it. Let's jump into mine. So Daniel, I'm sure you've seen as a, a lot of people on the internet, Kanye West is saying some insane things right now. He's been on a bunch of different podcasts saying some crazy stuff. And as a result, Adidas has dropped him from their partnership, right? They're no longer selling uh, Yeezy apparel, shoes, shirts, nothing. Yeezy's gone out of Adidas's arsenal. With that being said now, Adidas also said that they're going to have a $250 million hit to their earnings because of how integral that product line was to the business. What are your initial thoughts uh, on Adidas as a company now that they are gone and kind of severing ties away from Kanye West? My actual initial thoughts on this is, first off, I don't even want to talk about Ye anymore, right? Like the dude, he, he overstepped his boundaries. Secondly, Adidas as a company should have been quicker to the punch on that. Their, their executive team, I don't know if they went into, oh, crisis management mode. Yeah, because it makes so much money. It does not matter in my opinion. Like it does not, like that dude needs to be sent to Mars. I don't, at this point, like respect for him as an individual is gone, right? As for Adidas, yes, in the long term, they did make the right move because there's certain subjects like this. Like it doesn't matter the amount of money you're making if you are enabling something of that magnitude that should not be even relevant anymore um bullish on adidas they'll be fine uh in the long run they'll be fine they have plenty of other product lines every easy in the world should be burned i agree i think adidas is gonna be fine um i agree with all that entirely and uh yeah, it's it's it was it's been very interesting to watch all this like just take place in in like two weeks time. It's it's pretty weird. So yeah. next to this four one k contribution, you, you kind of beat me to it there. But I think what's interesting, something you didn't mention, is Charles Schwab just published a study in October um, that forty eight percent of Gen Z and millennials want crypto in their retirement accounts. They want to see crypto in their retirement. They want to see crypto in their 401ks. What are your initial thoughts on this? Should a volatile asset like that be in people's retirements? Are we getting kind of crypto crazy? Like, like I mean, we're in a crypto bear market, obviously. What's going on here? Uh, I'm bearish on that move. I don't think cryptocurrencies belong in a retirement account. And here's why. Uh, I've been reading a book right now. Actually, I have it right here. I'll show it to you guys. It's called Rearchitecting Trust. Um, and it's by Omid Melikin. He is the adjunct professor at Columbia Business School, um, who is like the, he calls himself the explainer in chief of crypto and blockchain. When you boil down to what blockchain is, is yes, as a technology, it's great. It can benefit, benefit us in so many ways. And he's breaking down the white paper of Bitcoin and Satoshi and all these other things. The cryptocurrency coins were never meant to be a, a store of value like people are trying to make them. Um, they were a way to enable trust within the actual technology, which is needed for any currency around the world. Um, and they needed to provide an incentive to the miners to back the entire network, to validate the transactions, to secure the network to the utmost level, right? The cryptocurrencies themselves the coins, the tokens that Ethereum introduced were just these add-ons, but I don't think the value that we're giving them will be something that lasts. I could be wrong, but I am bearish. 
I really appreciate the perspective, Daniel. That is a very well thought through response. As someone who is bullish on one cryptocurrency specifically, uh, it's called Chainlink. I think we've talked about it a lot here. And it's not because of it's a store of value, but instead because it is has the utility around uh, the Oracle problem and sharing you know, real world data to the blockchain. I think to your point, blockchain is a very incredible technology. Um, very interesting take. I love it. But I agree with you. I don't think crypto deserves to be in people's retirements. That's a terrible idea. Go get some dividend growth stocks. Put those in your retirement instead. Also, if you lose your value, there's no... Who just pointed this out? Uh, John pointed it out. It's not backed, right? It's not backed like government bonds. It's not FDIC insured. Like if you, mm -hmm. move, if you lose the money, you lose the money. Yeah, 100%. And not just that, but a lot of the companies, we think Celsius, right? They, Voyager, right? All these big companies who had billions of dollars in AUM now say, oh, sorry, your money's gone. Where'd it go? I don't know, right? It's, it's, it's insane. Good stuff. Last, this is very surprising to some, not surprising to myself, and probably not surprising to you either, Daniel. This last take is uh, headline-worthy, in my opinion, in the creator economy. Mr. Beast, the awesome content creator he is, is raising $150 million in a venture round at a $1.5 billion valuation. What are your initial gut reactions to one, how much money he's raising? Two, what do you think he can even be doing with that kind of money? And three, the billion dollar plus valuation. So it's a 10% stake. You said 150 million, right? At 1.5 yes. billion? Okay, so 10% stake and he's raising it for a fund to be like SoftBank? No, no, no. He like, like, okay, so Mr. Beast has all these like, you know, probably hundreds of employees. He's got his like 10 YouTube channels, right? the company of, of Mr. Beast is raising $150 million so he can go do a bunch of more cool stuff to grow his business. <laughs> that is, it's, 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 it's hard to wrap your but brain now around. He's going to space. <laughs> like, yeah. He talks about doing a space video. I've seen that before. Um, okay. So got it. So he's raising it as a personal company funding round. Got it. Um, man, I think that's interesting. Um, I mean, I'm bullish on Mr. Beast as a creator. The guy has figured out algorithms, has created great content, has put a, a great team around him. Um, the funding, why? So I think, so, so from my perspective, he's got two brands right now that are businesses under this umbrella, right? The first burgers one is- the chocolate, right? Yes, the burgers have already done 100 million uh, in sales over the last two years. And the chocolate is already gonna, is on pace to do 40 something million this year. Chocolate is much more profitable. And the chocolate business raised from 776, um, Shrug Capital, and other like you know notable uh, VCs. So I think this move is him coming for like a Nickelodeon, like a Cartoon Network. Like, like I think this is him laying the foundation for the next 10 years of building his own ecosystem of content and creators within that ecosystem, as well as being able to sell products directly, physical products, right? Directly to his watchers, not just advertisements. Or what if, <laughs> or I love what ifs, he's raising the money to take his current business ventures in America and take them international. Ooh, that makes a lot more sense. That would be my other guess, is doubling down on what he knows is working, if he has the international presence on YouTube and is the creator that we all know, right? Worldwide audience, why not? Right? You could be the next Korean BTS valuation. Um, oh, I'm bullish on that. Yeah, I'm bullish I am that. too. And yeah, I think he can pull it off. I think he has enough business people around him and enough creators and everything else. I think the guy's got a long, long uh, uh, path in front of him. Where he'll yeah, just he, he capitalize. just turned 24, like a couple months ago. He's 24? 24 years old, man. Oh, what am I doing with my life? <laughs> All right, there we go, everybody. And uh, we got some comments over here. So Vita says Adidas will be fine, but likely will partner with someone more interesting like Lizzo. I love that. I can do some Lizzo. Denise says, if your employer provides a match on your 401k, do it. If they do not, invest in a Roth to avoid RMDs, and you will not be taxed on gains and dividends on your equities. Look, look at this tax advice coming in. Add bonus is that the Roth passes to your beneficiary tax-free. Denise also says, no crypto and retirement accounts. Companies have a fiduciary responsibility to provide appropriate investment for their 401k plans for their employees. So companies would be open to potential liability lawsuits. That's a good Ooh, point. Ooh, that's that. interesting. Great point, Denise. 
All right, let's keep the show moving on. Now, look, we're going to go ahead and play the guest stock because I love this. You brought a stock that you want to communicate to our audience here about why you think that uh, it might be a good buying opportunity. Honestly, I'd never heard about this stock until you brought it to my attention. I think it's an interesting one as well. So we're going to play a quick game of guess the stock. Obviously, I'll give you these couple hints. If you think you know what it is, jump into the chat. Let us know. You can do a ticker symbol. You can let us know the company name. And let's get into it. So number first up, uh, this is a cybersecurity stock, which you might have seen. Um, it is based out of Mountain View, California. Hello, Silicon Valley. It IPO'd on June 30th of 2021. So just last year at a $1.3 billion valuation. The it's the official secure uh, cybersecurity sponsor of Aston Martin's Cos Cognizant, sorry, F1 team. So if you're an F1 fan, maybe that gives you a little hint. Dan Loeb's third point capital, which we mentioned earlier, a, a nice hedge fund that was in our Disney episode because he took a big stake. Uh, he owns 20 million shares of the stock with an average buy price of $42.78, according to his last 13F filing in July. But the fund did sell 1 million shares of the stock during that quarter. Interesting. Um, the company's competitors slash other competing services in the market include CrowdStrike, Bitdefender, Sophos, and Microsoft Defender. And we've got a couple of guesses. We got Octo. We got CrowdStrike. CrowdStrike. No, not CrowdStrike. Not FireEye. All right. So you want to know what it is? This company was formerly known as Sentinel Labs Incorporated, but today we know it as Sentinel One. All right, Austin. So, what's the rundown of this? Let's talk about Sentinel One. Okay. So, to your point, you know, who is this company? What's going on? I feel like a lot of people might not be familiar. Um, so, here's the deal. They know, you know, just last week, we talked about on the Wall Street Journal, I think it was part of our bullish and bearish banter, that there was an article claiming that 2,200 chief information technology officers across multi-billion dollar companies' biggest focus for 2023 was ramping up their cybersecurity efforts. And it's criminal, in my opinion, to drop such a cool headline like that to our listeners and not have some sort of stock idea that could benefit from, a, from, from such a clear secular growth trend, right? And that's what we're going to be doing today. So I'm, let's talk about Sentinel One, a cybersecurity provider for endpoint, cloud, and identity protection. Austin, what is endpoint protection? How, how, what does it even mean? How, how is it understood? How does it fit into a company's larger cybersecurity stack? Good question. Think about it like this, Daniel. Let's say you're a company with hundreds or even thousands of employees. All of your employees are using laptops and smartphones to complete work, communicate with one another, and access private data. The actual device itself, right, the laptop, the smartphone, the tablet, that is the endpoint device. That's the last point of contact with the company's network outside of a firewall. You guys follow me here? Endpoint device outside the firewall. This is why our bosses always tell us, you know, don't do personal stuff on your work computer. Don't download those personal apps on your work phone. Don't do that stuff on our computers. So let's now pretend one of those endpoint devices that your employee is in possession with has been compromised. If this was a phishing email, if they downloaded a weird file, like whatever, but it's compromised by a hacker. Since this device can access all the company's private data, so can now the hacker. And having an endpoint protection strategy in place is essential for every single company that uses technology, if you just think about it, right, to do work because every endpoint device can be a point of attack from hackers. And with the number of endpoint devices increasing exponentially because of remote work, the risk of cybersecurity and cyber attacks uh, increase as, as well. So the large part, uh, I'm sorry, the hard part about all of this is uh, these attacks are taking place at the intersection between humans and devices, humans and machines, right? So there's a bunch of room for error with humans. We're always making mistakes. We're clicking links. We're downloading stuff. Or we get fished in emails. Uh, it happens. But traditionally speaking, when an endpoint device is compromised, it takes a very well-trained cybersecurity professional to not just recognize that the attack is taking place, but to also isolate the endpoint device from the broader network to make sure that more damage isn't done. And when I say damage, you know, I want to remind everyone cybersecurity tax costs over 8 million in the US. So now you understand endpoint security, why it's important, how it impacts all of us if we're working remotely, working from home. What is Sentinel One? How are they working in this space? So through artificial intelligence, Sentinel One is able to detect, investigate, and respond to a cyber attack. Um, there's a bunch of reasons, in my opinion, to be excited about Sentinel-1. 
Uh, we'll talk about the reasons to be excited and reasons uh, you might want to be on the sidelines. And then I'll let, obviously we'll let everyone chime in and, and give their own uh, feedback. So the first reason to be excited is their earnings, right? The company, in my opinion, is crushing it. Annual recurring revenue uh, grew 122% to $439 million, with revenue captured during the most recent quarter being over $103 million, up 124%. They added a record number of customers during the quarter, 1,100 customers sequentially, quarter over quarter. That's insane. Total customer count grew 60% year over year to over 8,600 customers. Customers with annual recurring revenue of $100,000 or more, right? So these big paying customers grew by 117% to 755 and their customer wide. So every customer is not just the high paying ones, dollar-based net retention rate hit an all-time high of 137%, land and expand, right? Their gross profit margins came in at 65%, up 6% year over year with those non-GAAP margins hovering around that 72%, up 10% year over year. Operating margins increased 42% year over year. However, they're still an unprofitable company. Um, and a wonderful thing, which we'll talk about soon. Um, well, the, I guess, uh, operating margin expansion being a wonderful thing that is. So finally, their balance sheet is strong as ever. 1.2 billion cash, no debt, um, which I think is great considering we are headed toward a you know looming recession if we're not in run right now. I'd argue this is the type of company that's probably going to thrive during macroeconomic uncertainty, but um, I, you know it's so good to have no debt. And now looking toward the next quarter, 111 million in revenue. Love it. Similar operating margins, similar gross profit margins. Second reason to be excited, back to what we we're talking about with those operating margins, is um, their operating leverage, right? As a percent of total revenue, the research and development, sales and marketing, and general administrative costs all came down year over year as a percent of revenue, right? Operating leverage, they're seeing that it's great. 32% decrease in cost as a percent of revenue when compared to the quarter last year. They're not only growing exponentially as a company, but the economies of scale are beginning to kick in. The last reason I think someone would be excited is a lot of this really cool stuff that Bank of America recently published about them, CrowdStrike, and Microsoft, specifically this quote about endpoint security. So as you guys know, I think you know these, these big banks go around, they have these little check-ins with the companies in their coverage universe. And after their check-in, Bank of America came out and said, endpoint security spending remains resilient despite macro pressures. And partners noted that August and September were two of the strongest month of sales since COVID began. Our checks suggest that Sentinel-1's sweet spot is still the mid-sized enterprises. Sentinel-1 benefits from co-selling with vendors like Zscaler, and it also tends to have more partner-friendly culture than its peers. So those are the reasons to get excited. Uh, reasons not to get excited, reasons you might stay on the sidelines for the cybersecurity company. The first one is uh, cybersecurity is very fragmented, right? So I'd imagine if Sentinel One wants to continue to grow and become one of these massive deca billion dollar enterprises, they need to continue doing this merger and acquisition stuff. They just bought a company recently. A lot of acquisitions, I think, are on the table here. Uh, two, they're unprofitable. Uh, they're very unprofitable. They're not making any money uh, and they have not laid out a path to profitability yet. Three, their valuation is very steep, in my opinion. It's still trading around 12 times forward revenue, which is a high price to pay considering the current um, you know, macroeconomic uh, environment we're in with raising interest rates and, uh, and the fact that they're still unprofitable. And finally, their stock-based compensation expense continues to rise, which is only prolonging that eventual flip toward profitability. So if you're a growth investor, you might be drooling right now. If you're not a growth investor, you might think this is crazy. Uh, Daniel, what are your thoughts on Sentinel One after I've laid it all out here for us? That was a great, absolutely great layout that you just ran us through. Um, the first thing I like to do, obviously, is you, if you watch the show, you know, is we're going to go look at the Seeking Alpha factor grades and the rating summary. So, Josh, let's go ahead and throw up that first slide so everybody can see that the Seeking Alpha authors on this stock currently have a buy rating. The Wall Street analysts also have a buy rating, but our quant system here at Seeking Alpha has a hold. Let's go into the next slide and look at the factor grades that com uh, compartmentalize into what creates the quant system. So valuation is a B minus, growth is a C, profitability is a C minus, momentum is a C, and the revisions are a B minus. Obviously the grades you can see three months ago when they first started by the quant, just so you guys know, the quant doesn't start looking at the grades. And so we have a full year of uh, data on the company from their earnings reports that when it starts to compare all the metrics. So that's why you don't have a six months ago column right there. Um, but from three months ago, obviously the valuation has improved. The growth has slowed down. Profitability has slowed down, or sorry, grew a little bit. Momentum grew a little bit. And uh, EPS revisions from the analysts also has seen a positive improvement, which is a good sign for us.
you talk about, is this a good growth company? Is it a good sign? So let's go to the next slide. I want to break it down. Here's the analyst breakdown of what is going on on Wall Street. In the last 90 days, 19 analysts, here's how they break out. Strong buy, there are 11 analysts with a strong buy. Three have a buy rating and five have a hold rating. There are no sell recommendations on this stock. Love seeing that. Let's go ahead and look at the Seeking Alpha authors breakdown on the next slide. You've got in the last 30 days, not 90 days, 30 days, seven authors who have given ratings on this stock. There's only one sell, there's one hold, and the other five are buy or strong buy recommendations. Now, the thing that did pique my interest is go to the next slide, Josh, is here's the, the, the breakdown of the balance sheet. You talk about, okay, well, if they're doing stock-based compensation, they're delaying all this, they're burning cash, they're not profitable yet. Those are all true. Exactly. They just have been created, they've been, uh, they did an acquisition, two acquisitions, I think, since they've gone uh, public, but they still have $1.22 billion of total cash on the balance sheet. And their debt's only, it's under 30 million. So obviously they have a little bit of a runway here. They just need to capitalize on it. Um, you know, you've seen the, the employee headcount increase. Maybe that's due to the acquisitions. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's because of the growth factor that you're talking about. And they have momentum on their side. And they're actually taking that mid-market share like you're talking about. Josh, we can go ahead and take those off. Taking a little quick look at the chart, just so everybody can have an idea of what I see initial thoughts-wise on here. Let me go ahead and share my screen. Four Sentinel One. By the way, ticker symbol is S if you're listening to this on the pod, podcast or watching after the fact. So obviously we saw it went public. It got a nice big old boost. The, the initial question I had, and Austin, maybe you know the answer to this off the top of your head, is why was this stock having a significant pullback from its peak in November of last year before the markets pull back in January? Do you know why that might have been? Well, did uh didn't well, I think the spy pulled back in January. Wasn't the NASDAQ peaking in November? Good question. Maybe Let's I'm see. wrong. Uh NASDAQ. No, NASDAQ. Well, it came back a little bit, but it went right back towards its its highs. That's good um, question. I was trying to do some research on it. Couldn't really figure thing, anything out besides that at this moment in time, there was a hedge fund exiting their position. Now, I don't know if that would cause this steep of a drop. Yeah, I'd say probably not. No. So I'm, I was a little curious about that. Maybe it's stock-based compensation. I'm not really sure what happened there. I was trying to find some research on it. But obviously, we do know that Dan Loeb started entering, um, I think it was around this area here, um, is when Dan Loeb's third point started taking a stake. Um, and he still has 20 million shares. So something to keep in mind. Obviously, the moving averages are all on a downtrend. The stock has been demolished. It's off of the lows. Uh, will it hold? Hopefully. I mean, cybersecurity, as we talked about, we think it's bullish for the long term. Um, but they are competing, like I said, against companies like Microsoft and CrowdStrike and everything else. So they've really got to lean into their partner program, which I, from what I understand, they built out really well um, and try to do like a, a kind of a backdoor business approach of being buddy, buddy, mm -hmm. getting all their clients. And then probably eventually in the future, if they can make that work, they'll flip the switch or they'll try to at least. Yeah, and I think, you know, from what I was reading too online uh, from this Bank of America report is that CrowdStrike remains the EPP, right, endpoint uh, protection provider for these large, large enterprises, right? If you're a big company, you go with CrowdStrike. But, you know, we have a bunch of small and medium-sized businesses. And that, I think, is what Sentinel-1 is going after. All those, because I think what's interesting is when CrowdStrike shares their earnings, they say, these are the companies paying us over a million a year. Where Sentinel One says these are the companies paying us over a hundred thousand a year, right? So much smaller uh, from from that perspective. Yeah, they definitely have an uphill battle, right? And when, I love seeing Stephanie in the uh, in the chat here breaking down EBITDA and the profit margin. And Denise is also pointing out that it might be a a good company for the future to be acquired. Um, she says maybe Shopify will buy them. That'd be interesting. I don't. I think it'd be. I don't know. They have a lot of cash on the balance sheet. If they believe in their mission, they believe in their acquisitions they're making. If they're trying to become a dominant player, they might try to hold their own as long as possible. Um, that's just my initial thoughts. But and, and full disclosure, you are a shareholder of this company, right? Yes. Full disclosure, I hold stock in this company. I did not get in when uh, Loeb got in around those 40s. I've been sort of accumulating in like this mid 20s, uh, high, all, all around the 20s. Uh, I have been accumulating shares for sure. Um, and I think also it's interesting to point out there is one of those cell uh, publishers, or I'm sorry, one of the articles rather on Seeking Alpha from uh, from a publisher. And I read it and it was interesting to me that it wasn't exactly a sell saying like, here's like why the company is bad and instead saying it's still trading at a lofty valuation, which I totally agree with. So um, 
I don't know if you have any ideas, Daniel, or anyone in the chat has to say, or maybe even you know, send us an email. Hey, here are a couple of things that raised some red flags to me about Sentinel One. Please share because I, I mean, we love the feedback. We love sharing these ideas, ideas with you all. And uh, this is we're just always having a good time and opening the dialogue, opening the discussion. Yeah, for sure. Real quick, I want to answer the question from Krishna in the chat. How do I access the recordings of Stock Market Live? You can go to Seeking Alpha, and we actually have our own author profile. It has every episode of Stock Market Live. You can find it there. You can leave comments. We interact in the comments all the time. We love talking to you guys, so check us out there. Um, the one thing, you just mentioned red flags, and I just remembered that I did find one red flag about this company that I was a little worried about, and I just want to share it real quick before we get to Vladimir. It's, it's almost time to get in with Intel Mobile. We got to talk to him. So I was on Seeking Alpha looking through. I'm just going to go back to the symbol page so I can show you guys how I found this. So on the symbol page of Seeking Alpha, you can go all the way down here to the bottom where we have the SEC filings. And I love looking at the statement of changes and beneficial ownership because sometimes it can tell you a lot. It can tell you when people that are up in the C-suite are exiting their stock holdings before they know a bad quarter is coming. And this one caught my eye. I was going through. This is the CFO of the company, so definitely knows what is happening with the financials, David. Uh, and he was recently had stock converted from common B shares to common A shares. So I was like, okay, well, it's a conversion. It's usually a part of a bigger plan. This is what is highlighted in his Rule 10B5-1 trading plan. Now, the interesting thing about that type of plan is that is how most of the time C-suite executives communicate to the market that they have a plan to sell stock over time so that the market doesn't freak out when they go and sell their stock. But the other thing they don't really tell you is at any time that C-suite member can say, wait, I don't want to execute my plan this quarter if they know financials are going to be good. So keep that in the back of your mind. It could go either way. This guy could be taking it, putting it in a trust or using it for elsewhere. But he got his uh, his stock shares awarded and then immediately turned around and sold it. That's something I want to keep an eye on is I get it's part of your plan, but also there's been plenty of times where an executive has stepped in and said, hey, don't execute on my plan this quarter. So I, I totally agree. And I think um, as you know, I worked for a publicly traded healthcare company uh, and I remember one of our C-suite execs sold like 20 something million dollars worth of stock once. And I, I asked him, I was like, Hey man, like what's going on? Why'd you sell so much stock at our company? What's, you know, what, what's going back in your head? And he's like, Oh, no reason. I just, I, I, I got like three houses and I want to just pay off my mortgages on them. So I, it's what I had. So I sold them and I was like, okay. And the stock went up another, you know, hundred percent over the, over the next couple of years. So it's just, it's interesting to me yeah. that from that, I, I think that's totally valid. Um, but also like, I think, you know, people sell stock for any reason, but they only buy it for one reason. Right. So I always like to try and give more emphasis to who's buying the stock versus mm -hmm. like who's selling it. I don't know. No, it's a great point. And I'm glad you brought it up for everybody. Cause that is the other side of the coin, right? It is always great to go in and look at those beneficial ownerships to see who is acquiring stock before the quarter earnings and everything else. And obviously you're right. hundred percent. Right. Could be for any reason whatsoever. I always just like to keep a little eye on it because sometimes you oh, see yeah. my people and you're like, hold mm -hmm. on, red flag. All right, putting in a put order, put it in a call order, like whatever it might be. And that's where you really find that alpha arb trade. Now, we've taken way too much time. Thank you so much for bringing that Sentinel stock to us. I mean, I had no idea this company existed. So I appreciate all the effort you put into that. I'm sure everybody here does as well. But we got to get over to Vladimir, who is joining us today. He is a... Seeking Alpha Marketplace author. You can find him, The Roundabout Investor. Vladimir, why don't you go ahead and jump on screen here with us? Thank you so much. If you guys don't know, he's joining us from the other side of the planet right now. So it's obviously nighttime. We appreciate him taking the extra time in his day to join us. Vladimir, why don't you go ahead and just take a quick second, introduce yourself as well as the service and what you're all about. Okay. Hi, Daniel. And thank you for having me. Uh, basically, I'm, I'm a full-time full Seeking Alpha author for like two years now. Uh, I recently launched a service called The Roundabout Investor, where I focus on finding high-quality businesses that are really long-term oriented and sort of do not succumb to this short-termism within the markets. Uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of a unique service, and it's, it's a bit hard to understand by most people because what do you mean by high-quality businesses, sustainable competitive advantages? But, but to be honest, it's... It's kind of like, it's really easy finding all these businesses that do not really go into managing the business on a quarterly quarter basis. And yeah, my background is basically in finance. Uh, prior to Seeking Alpha, I was a strategy consultant in the city of London for a number of years. And yeah, now I'm full-time Seeking Alpha author. 
Man, and we, we love having you a part of the family here, man. Like you, I've been reading your recent articles and we're going to dive into it. Let's just go ahead. Why am I waiting? Well, let's go ahead and get into it. Obviously, the big ticket item on the table today is you rose, you recently wrote about Intel Mobileye. Um, and obviously they're going public. They just, they started trading a little while ago. We're seeing a big upside. I, I'm not sure where it is right now. It was at 30%, pulled down to 26% up, but like it is seeing a massive move. Um, why don't you go ahead and just kind of give us your initial thoughts on is this positive for Intel as a company or is it kind of worrisome that they're doing this IPO in a down year where IPOs have pretty much dried up and the valuation has dramatically reduced similar to almost similar to what happened with WeWork, right? What is What are your thoughts yeah. on that? Yeah, I think most of the people are really sort of getting too much out of it. Because at the end of the day, Intel is only selling a tiny proportion of the business. Most of the people don't really realize that it's it's not the whole business that they're selling. They're selling only around 5%. And that's not really, in my opinion, that's not really a sort of Intel giving up on the on the whole thing. And so yeah, why, so why right. are they doing the IPO now, though? I mean, if, do they need the cash? Like, that's, I think, one of the speculations no. that's been going on is, you know, Intel is spending so much on capital expenditures, right? They want a bigger presence yeah. in Europe. They want to have their Ohio foundry built. Are they just strapped for cash, yeah. and this is the easiest method for them to raise? I mean, to be honest, they will, they, Intel will really need some cash in the, over the coming years as they're building their, their business and the foundry business. But but this is not, this doesn't have anything to do with sort of needing the capital. First of all, it's a really tiny amount. I think they're raising around 800 to 900 million out of it, when Intel actually spends 25 billion a year right now, and they slowly need to ramp this up over the coming years. So yeah, I don't think it's really, I don't think they're really for the cash out of it. They, in my view, they really want to get their sort of their foot in the door, get sort of get the message out there. This is the company, get get probably a few quarters or years of sort of SEC filings, get investors familiar with the business. And then I would expect for them to seek some deals with outside investors. Probably. There you go. All right. And so just to, I mean, Austin and I were a little confused earlier. I yeah, I don't, I'm, I'm not going to lie, man. I know what Intel does. The idea that that Daniel kind of painted for me, the, the picture there, I, I kind of get it. But what 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 is IPOing? How are they making money? How much money are they making? Is it, what what's going on here with with this uh, this stock? Well, basically, they're the leader in ADAS. ADAS basically is all of these advanced driving assistance systems within the cars. Well, so what they do, they they purchase the semiconductors, they create this system on the chip, and and then then sell it to sort of out auto parts manufacturers or other OEMs that retrofit it into the, into the cars. But now with the autonomous vehicles, this field is sort of changing. Now you need huge investments in software. You also need sort of CPUs and GPUs working in tandem for, for the whole autonomous driving uh, experience. You also need all these fleets to sort of get the data out of and create the software around it. So the field is changing quite, quite drastically. So you, you're saying that they're selling these to be retrofitted, right? Who's buying these? Who, who are buying these? Who, who, who's buying their products, their software? And, and what kind of cars are, are kind of taking this? You said it was ADAS, A-D-A-S? Yes. Yeah, who's real quick, that stands, that stands for Advanced Driver Assistance Systems, just for everybody to know. Yeah. And that's completely different from what Tesla's doing. That's completely different from what Toyota's doing, right? Actually, it's a, it's a similar. I mean, okay. if, if you think about it... Uh, Although yeah, Tesla you can't tell too. I have no idea about <laughs> EVs or self-driving cars. This is just so, it's a new world for me right now. Yeah, uh, it's, it's just that they're doing sort of for, with the others, they're, they're coming from a bit different part of the market into the whole AV space. And their customers are actually really not well known. They're sort of uh, companies like ZF and Valio. These are like auto parts within the supply chain, auto parts manufacturers that basically get all the parts and, and get it through the supply chain to the OEMs. Uh, a big client of theirs is, is Aptiv. They're publicly traded and they're sort of one of the leaders within the AV space that they own the fleets and they're planning to, to launch the service. We got a, a quick question here in the chat, Vladimir from Christian. Um, 
he's kind of wondering how does Mobileye differ from Way Mode? Do you have uh, some insight that you could share with him? Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're different in a way that Waymo owns the fleet. The being part of Google really helps them to when they're launching their robotaxis to own the fleet and basically be within house. Mobileye does not plan to own the fleets. They're planning to get the technology, get the software, and then sell it to, to third parties. Having said that, though, it's, it's worth mentioning that they actually need some fleet to get the data. So, because when you're building all this complex software for the AVs, you do need fleet on the streets to gather data, analyze it, and then create the, the, the AV. The data. So, Vladimir, yeah. I got to ask you um, as of right now, knowing that the spinoff is happening, is this. Would you be invest? I mean, it's only you said what five or six percent of the entire company actually being IPO'd. Is that investable yeah. right now? I think so. Uh, it probably won't be as liquid as for for pension funds and large and large hedge funds. But for retail investor, I will assume so. Although personally, I I wouldn't I wouldn't really go for it right now. I mean, it's first of all, it's an IPO. It's a really dynamic market. Most of the peers operate as part of bigger entities. So for me personally, it's not really worth jumping on the train right now before the dust has settled from the whole IPO. And, See, that and was, as I said, oh, I, I was going to say that's exactly before. what I was going to ask, right? So, so you're saying it's it's not exactly the time. It's but, it, but you're thinking it's like could be like a retail thing, not exactly hedge funds because it's only five percent. As the dust settles, what are some perhaps like catalysts that would get a retail investor more excited to? maybe make the make the jump there is it maybe a, a a patent is it a technology is it like maybe new fleets to test this technology on what would be a catalyst or two that would get people excited about this likely it would be a partnership deal is what i expect they they, they i think my opinion is they're trying to get up some partner involved whether that's a company like apple whether it's an auto manufacturer it's not yet known but they're definitely looking outside investors and partnerships. Yeah, I was wondering about the catalyst too. I, I want to move off of Mobileye real quick and let's go back to the parent company. Like Intel, Do you, uh, with seeing how much Intel has pulled back and hearing the story of what's going on with America and the semiconductors and everything else, do you think an Intel as a company would be investable then? Yeah, it definitely looks attractive at these levels. Although similar story here for me. I mean, semiconductors are now in the eye of the storm, if I should say it within this bear market. I mean, there is huge momentum trade that was going on within the semiconductor space that is now fading with liquidity being withdrawn. Uh, there is also slowing growth within the sector. There are huge geopolitical risks within the field. So I would say definitely Intel is one, one of my favorites, but not, not right now. I'm still sort of taking the wait and see approach on that. Yeah, Josh, can you throw up that uh, chart chart that I snagged from uh, Vladimir's article actually between Intel, Nvidia, and AMD? Because you you made this chart, you had it in the article, and I thought it was too great to not share with everybody. I mean, yeah. the semiconductor sector has been just completely demolished this year with everything that's happening. Um, and real quick, actually, while we're at it, I think we have a couple slides about Intel as well. Let's go ahead and run through those just so that everybody's aware of what's going on with the ratings. Uh, let's go to the next slide. So Intel from the Seeking Alpha authors have a buy rating. The Wall Street analysts are a hold on Intel. The quant system is a hold on Intel. Next slide, Josh. And looking at the factor grades, we see that valuation actually is an A+, and profitability is an A+, which is pretty interesting to me. Growth is a complete F. Uh, momentum and revisions are both Ds, kind of struggling at these levels, but it does pay a dividend, right? So we pulled the dividend grades here. Next slide, Josh. Dividend is a B minus for safety, C for growth, A plus for yield, and A for consistency. So it looks like the dividend seems to be safe here. So that as a you know as a value investor, long term play, the the story you're telling me about Mobileye and Intel as a company, I agree with you. I think these levels are starting to look a little attractive. Personally, I would personally be a bit careful with the dividend because Intel building their foundry business right now. They have huge capital, would have huge capital needs over the coming years. And given the, the huge opportunity in front of them, this dividend might be at risk in the coming years, but that would be certainly be for the greater good, in my view, over the long term. 
aren't they getting would, a lot of company from or a lot of uh funds from the government government to build this foundry though yeah they, they also rely on the chips act for that but obviously they would need internal capital as well Gotcha. Josh, you can go yeah, ahead. I'm, I'm jumping over here to Intel on uh, on Seeking Alpha, and I'm seeing a forward yield of 5.5%. That's wow. very risky in this sector. Because yeah. the semiconductor space, that's very risky. Right? Share price Absolutely. goes down, yield goes up. Yeah, totally, totally. But wow, that's, but he, that's he makes a good point of like dividend, you know, that would be the first thing to cut if they do need to spend a ton on capital, CapEx. Um, good point. Any other questions, Austin, for you about uh, Intel or Mobileye? I had one more thing I wanted to ask him, but just wanted to check. Uh, no, I think I think that's it, right? The Catalyst partnership ideas. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so, yeah, no, I just I just got I'm I'm excited to keep my eye on this one. This is really interesting. Yeah. I really appreciate you sharing this with us, Vladimir. Denise has a, a good so she's over here in the chat. Says insurance companies across the world want the type of data that Mobileye has to help with their loss models, pricing premium and policy inclusions, exclusions. So Intel slow divest of Mobileye will help fund the dividend rather than paying from operating profits. Oh. Thoughts on that? That is actually, I mean, it's definitely, it's a fair point. definitely a fair point. What I must say is I have a, another personal favorite within the field that I'll keep in secret because it's within my service. Oh, come right on, tell it's us. Posted, come on. But it's, the question here really is how do you want to operate this whole business? Do you want to operate it in-house with all the other auto-related businesses, insurance and all that kind of stuff? Or do you want it to have it separate? This is still not, still not certain in my view. How should the field settle in over the coming years? Would it be better to be independent? Would it be better to be as part of a bigger entity? That's still the bigger norm. So do you, is, does it rhyme with a test in Allah? <laughs> no, no, that I, that I can say. <laughs> oh, okay, all right, all right. We'll get it from another time. Save it for the service, obviously. Um, so I, as I mentioned, I was going through all your articles and I got to ask you this, uh, moving on from Intel is you wrote an excellent piece about what's going on with ExxonMobil. And I've said everybody before, I am a shareholder of ExxonMobil. I have been for a long time. I've seen it go up to the 90s. I wrote it down to the 40s, the 30s. I'm back over 100s. Um, but I couldn't help. I have the same question for you as one of the users on Seeking Alpha left on that article. And it's the article sounded very bullish. You came across very, very bullish about why ExxonMobil is, is standing out from its peers yet you gave it a hold rating for the stock. Just kind of curious, why is that? Yeah, um, definitely long-term, the, the bullish thesis still holds. The problem with this sector is that it's really cyclical and when invest, investor sentiment can really drive the stock price of, up and down around the fair value. So seeing this back, I first wrote about ExxonMobil back in 2020, when the sentiment around the stock was to the bottom. And seeing this huge investor swing in investor sentiment is what I don't really like within the company. And it's like uh, fundamentals here, yeah, they could change quarter, quarter by quarter basis and being so hung up on these quarterly results by investors is something I, I don't really like about it. But definitely, yeah, definitely. I mean, probably investor readers should not be reading that much into the, all these ratings if they plan to hold, let's say, for next 10 years. I'm just putting this rating with the mind of people who might be buying or selling for, let's say, the next few months. Gotcha. Okay. I'm glad I, glad I asked you because I was, I'm just looking for clarification because Austin and I on this show, we ask each other all the time, what about oil? Where's oil going? Are you bullish or bearish? Like we're trying to figure this out. Obviously, it's been the sector that dominated this year, but we know that's not going to continue to happen every single year, right? So that's where I had yeah, to ask. Definitely. I was like, what's the time frame here, which we always talk about is... What's your time frame? So I'm glad you Definitely. pointed out. And you also have the huge political risk because when when the administration sees all these huge profits, you know what, what usually happens. In the UK, they, they're trying to introduce this tax on profits. So yeah. And what I just saw on Seeking Alpha's website that I didn't know, and maybe this is me just not giving up with oil as well as I should, ExxonMobil is a $450 billion company now. Oh my gosh. Wow. Yeah, Massive and I think since 2020. They're, uh, they're heavily focused in R&D of, of 
other things outside of oil now too, like the hydrocarbons and everything else. Like they're, they're trying to help lead the charge in that regard. But then also I think the news I saw this morning was that they found more oil patches around, um, shoot, where was that? Uh, I got to look it up one second. Guyana. I think Guyana heard it. They, they just found some, some new guana there it is yeah. two new offshore guana discoveries i mean they've got discovery they they do it across the board and actually this was a company put on my radar by my grandfather and he's been invested in it for a lot longer than i have so um yeah interesting company that's kind of like was under the radar everybody wanted to give the props to chevron and i was like there this might this might warrant kind of the same amount of hype Definitely, definitely. And actually ties really well with my sort of philosophy for roundabout investments. Because basically what Exxon did, they continued to reinvest even as even as oil went negative, all the prices collapsed, they continued to reinvest in these projects that basically take decades to build. And managing this business for quarter by quarter, it's basically not working well if you want to secure your long-term competitive advantage. So yes. So I'm Great. seeing Vladimir on your uh, on your author page. You publish a lot of content. You are you are publishing analysis nearly, I'd say, every week, every other week. I mean, I'm seeing. I try to. Yeah. I very try good to. stuff. I, that's that's incredible. One thing I noticed though is a lot of, uh, well, at least more recently, a lot of seldom buy ratings, right? Uh, so I guess what I'm trying to say is I'm only seeing a couple. And Oracle is on that list. And I'm not, I don't mean to blindside you here on some Oracle questions, but isn't Oracle doing this like big turnaround? Isn't like cloud computing like a big thing for them now? Aren't they like super focused on growth as like just, just this whole secular growth turn around cloud? Walk me a little bit through maybe um, Oracle over the next, you know, you mentioned like from a short-term perspective, perhaps walk me through Oracle for the next maybe six to nine months. What are maybe some of the biggest focuses, perhaps maybe some headwinds that they might be um, facing? Six to nine months is probably, they're basically getting more into the infrastructure space. So usually they, they're really strong in the ERP space, in the software part of it, SAS. But uh, they, they've been, for many years, they've been sort of a niche player in the inf cloud infrastructure space. And now as the growth slows down, I think we saw an article today about Google and their, uh, and, and their problems, but uh, the whole growth is kind of slowing down, cooling off a bit after the, the boom of the post pandemic recovery. And uh, our Oracle is really trying to sort of get a, it's sort of a premium player in that space, if I could say. So six to nine months, I would expect them to sort of continue continue their growth path, probably accelerate a bit, but it's really uncertain. I mean, it's I'm, I'm a bit more on the long-term side for that. Okay, so long-term with Oracle. I'm, I'm over here looking at their stock yes. chart. It They kind of had this long consolidation phase uh, between, I want to say, call it 2014 to 2017, 2018. And then during the pandemic, you know, they saw a lot of momentum uh, heading higher. And so from a long-term perspective, I'm seeing they're paying a little bit of a dividend. Uh, what, I guess, is getting you excited most about Oracle, maybe for the next couple of years? Yeah, I mean, as I said, that really trying to sort of transition. And even their cloud ERP segment is growing at 20, 30% mm -hmm. over, over the past mm -hmm. few years. But since they have lots of legacy business with sort of on-premise, they have all this database on-premise and transitioning from this slower growth business that's been dominating Oracle for years to the high growth space in the cloud takes time. But once you look underneath the surface, you see the huge growth potential in these areas. I love it. I love that's it. That's awesome. Guys, I, I, Vladimir, first off, thank you so much for taking the texture time today. We love having thank you on you. here. Obviously, Austin had a great point. I was just scrolling down further down your page. I mean, you're talking about you write on IBM, Mondelez, General Mills, NVIDIA, IBM, Deer, did I say IBM twice? Amazon, Oracle. I mean, all the companies, it seems like everybody wants to know about you're writing about it. So um, I personally would recommend everybody go check you out on Seeking Alpha, your author page. You're blowing up with articles like Austin pointed out. Uh, we loved having you on today. Love the thesis. Love the breakdown. Thanks for answering our questions. Um, besides Seeking Alpha, are you on Twitter as well? Where else can we find you? Yes, yeah, Twitter and LinkedIn as well. I'm, I'm, I'm active in both pages. So basically going on my profile, I think there's a link to my Twitter profile. Man, 
That's crazy. Vladimir, listen, thank you so much for taking the time today. Awesome. Listen, man, you just earned yourself a follower on Twitter, LinkedIn, <laughs> and Seeking Alpha. You're a rock star. I really appreciate all the constant analysis. 253 um, posts. This is incredible. I, I can't wait to uh, to read more, man. In two thank years, you so much. Right? Thank you for oh, having man. me, guys. In two weeks? Two years. Two years. Oh, two years. Two years. <laughs> I was like, what? This guy's a metal. <laughs> awesome. You got to okay. step your game up. No, that's I know. Vladimir, I know. Thank you so much, man. Thank Thanks you for having me, me, guys, and have a good one. Yeah, you too. Oh, awesome. What a guy. Josh, let's go ahead and throw up that last slide. We got to start rocking and rolling. Uh, Vita as well says, thanks, Vladimir. Thank you to everybody hanging out with us today. Obviously, if you want to give us some stock ideas for future episodes, we continue to take those week over week. Email us at stockmarketlive at seekingalpha.com. You can find myself on LinkedIn. I'm there posting stuff all the time. Austin, Seeking Alpha on LinkedIn, Twitter, and TikTok. And TikTok. We're well, always on TikTok, baby. You, if you're, a, you, I don't know if any of y'all are on TikTok, but if you're on TikTok, check me out. Big TikTok guy. Big TikTok guy. He is a big TikTok guy and he's crushing it over there. Uh, Vladimir Dimitrov, Dimitrov sorry, uh, at the Roundabout Investor on Seeking Alpha. You can also just go check out his author profile, all those articles. He broke it down and he's a CFA, by the way. So he likes looking numbers. Let's be honest. Um, all right. Awesome. Anything else from you, man? Nothing from me, but I, I do want to throw a name in the hat for next week for our stock idea, Academy Sports. Academy Sports. We've seen mm -hmm. a lot about them. Their stock is up 200% since they IPO'd during the pandemic. It hasn't really seen too much of a pullback. They got a lot of catalysts as it relates to, uh, it, it's a very interesting stock. So I'm going to throw that in the hat. Please, you know, we got John talking about dicks. John if you have any ideas, Dick's email us. Goods. They've got some good uh, partnership deals. I don't know. Do. You guys let us know. What do you think about Academy Sports? Should we cover it? Yes or no? We've obviously got a ton of other stocks that we still got to get to, but obviously we're building it up. We're going through them week after week, bringing you the analysis. Thanks for hanging out with us on your lunch hour, your evening, wherever you are. We appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Hit that subscribe. Leave us a comment, rating, whatever you do. And we'll see you guys next week, Wednesday, 12 p.m. Eastern. Josh, get us out of here.